do continue to pray for Ukraine, for believers there. Uh, yeah, I've been asked a couple times in the last week or so for a biblical perspective on that. It's an, and the Bible says a lot about God moving believers out. And you've got to remember, in the, in the million and a half people so far that have sought refuge in other countries, there are believers that God is moving out of Ukraine. Uh, and not, we're not justifying what Putin's done and is doing. We're just reminding ourselves that God is in control and that ultimately it's all about the gospel. So do be praying for, those, praying for the nation, praying for the innocent people, praying for peace, and praying our leaders and leaders in the world would have wisdom at this time. I want to pause and mention one thing to you. Just as a reminder, throughout our building, you will find these cards, the best news cards. Uh, it has the gospel on the back and our logo on the front. They are around the building because they're for you to pick up, to take home, to give to friends, to use in gospel conversations, to leave with your tip at restaurants. Uh, as I always say, remember to leave a tip, not, not just the gospel card, but take that with you, leave those for folks, and uh, we keep them out around the building for you to take home. If you have your Bible with you, find, again, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5 in your New Testament. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 5. Turn to chapter 5 in Luke and hold your place there for just a minute. This morning we continue our series we started two weeks ago. Uh, and I do appreciate Pastor Mike preaching this past week. What a great message that was. Two weeks ago we started a message series called Faces in the Crowd. And we're watching Jesus interact with people. He, he finds individuals, or they find him. He treats people as people, even in the midst of a great crowd. And we're looking at those instances in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and we're finding just how similar those people are in the first century to us in the 21st century. And we're reminded of how Jesus works in our lives as well. He knows you. He sees you. He knows your issues. He knows your problems. He knows your heartache. Uh, he knows what's going on in your life, and you'll find we are very similar to these same people in the first century. That's what this series is about. If we're going to find salvation, to know salvation, to know our purpose in life, we do that through Jesus Christ, God in Jesus Christ. That's the relationship that we need. George Harrison was lead guitarist for the Beatles, passed away in November of 2001, and since then, uh, there have been a couple of documentaries about George Harrison and his experience with the Beatles. And, and not only being a, a guitarist and a member of the Beatles, he's also known for his religious perspective. He, he uh, embraced Hinduism and Indian mysticism, and he brought a lot of that spiritualism and spirituality and Hinduism into his music in the Beatles. He was actually a, a great influence in some of their songs. And you, if you know the Beatles well... Uh, uh, and I'm not a Beatles fan, by the way, but if you are and you know the Beatles well, then you probably already know that. Pick up on that. What you may not know is that he reflected on life in that perspective. One time George Harrison said, the purpose of life is to find out who I am, why I am here, and where I am going. That's what we need answering. And not long before he died, he said, everything else can wait, but the search for God cannot wait, and love for one another. The search for God cannot wait. He's right about that because that's where we find our purpose in life. The problem is he was searching in the wrong place. The Bible teaches that if we are going to know God, then we know God through Jesus Christ. So when we watch God interact with people in scriptures, we watch Jesus interact with people in scriptures, we're watching God interact. We're seeing how God behaves and how God responds to us 
through our problems, to our issues, how God finds us as a face in the crowd and then responds to us. This morning we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 5 and verse 17, the story that follows where we were two weeks ago. Uh, and it's a, it's a well-known story in the Bible, played out in just about every Jesus movie that's ever made. If you're very familiar with the Gospels and the life of Christ, you will recognize this story. It's repeated in Matthew and, and Mark as well as in Luke. So look here with me, Luke chapter 5 and verse 17. This is what the Bible says. On one of those days while he was teaching, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came carrying on a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before Jesus. That is, bring him in the front door and set him down. Verse 19, since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and he, he turned and told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. And immediately he got up before them, picking, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. It's a story that resonates with all of us. There's excitement embedded in it. It's fast-paced. Uh, it, it, it scoops up our frustrations and our struggles and our worries, and, and the story itself just hands all of that to Jesus. And we see Jesus do a miraculous and wonderful work in the life of one paralyzed man, a work that changes everything for that man and for everyone else from that point forward. On the front end of the story, there are a few things that are critical to understanding the story, but not only the story, to everything else that happens in the ministry of Christ. And that's the reason that this work took place and God designed this work for early in Jesus' ministry. So I want to point out just a few things before we go forward, as they, they serve as benchmarks or, or maybe pivot points, we should call them, to understanding this story. The first one is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or sometimes called the scribes. Now you'll notice what Luke tells us is that they have traveled to see Jesus. Mark tells us the town Jesus is in, and this house is in the town of Capernaum, which served as a headquarters in Galilee uh, for Jesus' ministry, then it may very well have been Peter's house. We already know from other stories that Jesus has been in Peter's house. Uh, so Capernaum, a, a, a fishing village in Galilee, is where this event takes place in a home there, and the scribes and the Pharisees travel there. Notice that, they, they come there. Now what's important is this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, also called the scribes, are mentioned. In our Sunday school classes, in our biblical literature, if you've grown up in church, you've learned that the Pharisees are bad people. And Jesus throughout the Gospels is reprimanding the Pharisees for their legalism and for their religion and for they, how, how they uh, hold down the people from, from coming to know God and, and His grace. And there's good reason for that. 
But to the people of the first century, to the Jews of the first century, the Pharisees were very important people. Uh, when the Jews came back from their exile uh, into Palestine about four, almost 500 years before this event, they brought with them teachers of the law. They hadn't existed before, but they knew they needed to protect their faith and their religion. It wasn't until they returned from the exile, which is reported in Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, then Ezra and Nehemiah, when they, when they returned from that exile, that's the first time, that's when they start being referred to as Jews because they are people of Judea. And they now have a codified system of religion and they have people to protect that code. Should they ever be in exile again? Should they, and as the generations go along, should they ever lose the fundamentals of their faith? Uh, they want to be sure those things are protected so that doesn't happen. So they instituted uh, positions called Pharisees and scribes and then Sadducees who were not reported here. The scribes were Pharisees but with a particular specialty. And it worked like this. The Pharisees uh, had, had the job of protecting the law of Moses to make sure that it stayed, uh, it kept its integrity and it stayed pure. That was their job. The scribes or teachers of the law, their job was to apply the law of Moses. Uh, they dictated how the law could be applied and to make sure that, again, that they kept the integrity of the law in the moment in changing times how that was applied. Now, as protectors of the law and as people who were, who were assigned the job of uh, applying the law for the Jews, they had to go check out and review any religious teaching. So what's happening here is the first official theological review of Jesus' teaching. And they have traveled to do that. Some, even from Jerusalem, traveled north into Galilee, and here they are sitting, and they're listening to Jesus teach. And they're either going to give him their stamp of approval, or they're going to deny that his teaching is sound and, of the law of, and in line with the law of Moses. That's why they are there. Their importance becomes evident as the story goes on. Through the years, the Pharisees had turned the law of Moses into a legalistic handbook, a rule book. At first, it was a way to make sure they were fulfilling what God wanted and, and, and that the people had a good relationship with God. By the time of Jesus, they had added over 600 rules and laws to the Ten Commandments. And nobody could remember those, so they, they became legalists, and they often kept people from knowing God in the very way they were supposed to know God. But even worse, now, here we are in the first century, 500 years away from when they were instituted and thousands of years from when the Ten Commandments came about, God is sitting right in front of them, and they don't recognize him. The very law that was supposed to teach them about God and get them closer to God now was in their way and prevented them and the people from even knowing God when he sat right down in front of them in human flesh. That was their biggest problem, and it is throughout the Gospels. So that's the first benchmark. The second one comes in verse 17. Luke editorializes, and Luke says, the power of God to heal was in him that day. The power of the Lord to heal was in Jesus that day. Now, he doesn't mean that that was the only day that Jesus had the power to heal or the first day he had the power to heal. Luke is just making the point that Jesus has the power to heal and he's making that point for what comes next. Uh, to ensure the reader keeps going and to find out that Jesus is strategic and intentional about what he does next in the life of the man on the pallet who's lowered through the roof. 
And then one more thing, there's a question that comes up. Who is this man? The Pharisees and the scribes, who is this man? Uh, because who can heal but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right about that. So if a man claimed to forgive sins, their law said he was blaspheming, punishable by death, which ultimately is the reason the Jews turned Jesus over to the Romans to be executed. Here on the front end of his ministry, they're already accusing him of blasphemy because he claims to forgive sins. But notice Jesus' response. Notice what Jesus says about himself. It's one of the most important self-titles Jesus ever uses. Son of man. The son of man has the authority to forgive sins. Again, if they'd known their uh, scriptures well enough and would apply it to him, which, which their legalism would not permit them to do, they would realize what Jesus was doing is using a messianic title prophesied throughout the Old Testament. It became Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man. It's the title Daniel uses of the Christ, the Messiah that would come, that God would send. It's used in the Old Testament, and Jesus uses it more than 60 times it's used of Christ in the Gospels. The Son of Man. He is self-identifying as the Christ of God, the Messiah, God himself in human flesh. That's who he is. They ask, who is this man? He's God's Son the Messiah. Now with that background, I want us to zero in this morning on a fundamental truth. God's power comes to us through Jesus Christ. God always applies his power to us through Jesus Christ. Always. Let's break that down for just a minute because I want you to see with me this morning three ways that Jesus applies the power of God. Verse 17, that's why Luke told us the power of God was there, the power to heal. It's, a, it's an important statement, so how does he use it? What can we learn for it? Well, there's three ways that, uh, that Jesus applies the power of God in this passage. I want you to see this with me. And see how this applies to you this morning. First, Jesus responds to your faith. Jesus responds to your faith. When you and I demonstrate faith, trusting him and him alone, Christ always responds to that faith. God responds through Jesus to your faith. Mark tells us there are four men carrying the pallet, and one man, the, the paralytic, the crippled man, on the pallet. They get to the house. The crowd has swelled so much they can't get anywhere near the door. The, the interior, the main room, the front room of the house where people are looking in, that's filled up as well. Now, in a, in a first century Palestinian home, there would have been stairs on the outside of the home and a flat roof. This was very common. So they decide to take initiative, and they carry their friend up the stairs to the flat roof. And every roof in the first century was made out of a combination of, of mud and thatch and sometimes hard tiles that had been dried in the sun and laid under that mud straw and that thatch. So they start tearing through that. They're determined. They're going to lower their friend right down in front of Jesus. They're, they're going to get him to Jesus that day. Boy, wouldn't you like friends like that? Now, at first, with all the commotion and the crowd and Jesus' teaching, they probably weren't paying a lot of attention to it. When Jesus was teaching, people were very quiet. But they may not have noticed there were people on the roof just yet. But when they get far enough down, they start breaking through those sun-baked tiles. The commotion erupts. There's debris falling into the room above them, and right in front of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't move. There's no alarm on his part. He just looks up and he watches. 
And when the, when the hole is big enough, suddenly a man starts being lowered down. And as we read it, they lowered him down before Jesus. The phrase means close enough that, well, put it this way, they could have scraped his nose. And there was no missing this man. They lower him down in front of Jesus. There's a gasp from the crowd. How dare they disrupt this teaching moment by lowering this man. We were listening to Jesus. We, we were having church. And Luke says, seeing their faith, Jesus takes action. Seeing their faith. We have a misunderstanding about faith. And sadly, we get this sometimes even from Christian books, Christian literature, and even Christian preachers. We definitely get it from Disney and Oprah. It's that faith is somehow self-existent and all by itself it can have power in your life. The way you hear it in our culture and from Disney and from talk shows and, and we learn it is just have faith. What does that mean? Just have faith. You see, the Bible doesn't tell you to just have faith. The Bible teaches that your faith is as strong as the object of your faith. What matters is the one you trust, where you put your faith. That's what matters. Seeing their faith means these persistent people were obsessed and focused on Jesus. They wanted to get their friend to Jesus, and nothing would stop them. The outworking of their faith was visible to all who were there. Notice he did, it doesn't say he heard their faith, felt their faith, thought about their faith, asked them about their... No, seeing their faith. How do you see faith? You see faith through action. And they took action to demonstrate that they believed it was Christ and Christ alone who brought the power of God into the house that day. And they got their friend there. God responds to your faith in Him. Not to this ethereal, out there somewhere feeling of faith. No, God responds to your faith in him, when you say, I am focused, I am obsessed, I am persistent. I trust you, Jesus Christ, and you and you alone. I trust you to forgive me of my sins. I trust you to save me. I trust you to guide me. I trust you to help me. I trust you to make decisions. I trust your will, your word, you. I put my faith in you. That's the faith that God responds to. One time Jesus told his disciples, if you had faith of a mustard seed like that. It's not the amount of it, it's the fact of it. I trust you, Jesus, and I'm persistent in my trust. If you're in this room or at home today and you've been waning in your faith, you, maybe your prayers have been taking a long time and God hasn't answered them the way you thought that he would. Maybe you're not seeing him work the way that you thought he would or the way that you want him to or the way you thought he should and you're struggling. Persist. Focus. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust Him. Trust Him. He is your God. Nobody loves you as much as He does. Nobody knows you as well as He does. Put your faith, your focus, your trust in Him and Him alone. Seeing their faith. Live it out. Live it out. Do people know that you have faith in Christ? 
Now, here's a question we're going to ask again today and through this series. It's a simple question. You say you trust Christ as your Savior. You say you're a follower of Christ. Simple question. What difference does it make? What difference does it make? If people compared the way you make decisions as a Christian with the way the non-Christians make decisions, what difference does it make? If people compared the way you talk with the way non-Christians talk, what difference does it make? If people compared the way uh, you handle your money, you handle your family, you treat your neighbors, you behave at work with the way your neighbors do all those things, people who don't know Christ, what difference does it make? God responds to your faith. Secondly, Jesus forgives your sin. That's how Jesus applies the power of God. Jesus forgives your sin. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. If you have your own Bible in front of you, underline that phrase, your sins are forgiven. Because we want to break it down just a minute. It's actually an important phrase. Your sins are forgiven. First of all, it's passive. See, lowering the man through the roof, that action, while it was important and demonstrated faith, did not forgive his sins. In our, in our terminology, it didn't save him. The works didn't save him. It was his faith that Jesus was responding to. And he said, your sins are forgiven. That means it's passive. And, and that means that God forgave the man's sins through the power and the word of Jesus Christ. God applies his power through Christ. Christ applies God's power by forgiving the man's sins because of his faith. And when he says, he speaks of their faith and your sins are forgiven, he's speaking for all five of the men, not just the one lowered down. It's an all-encompassing phrase that God through Christ has forgiven them of their sins because their faith and their focus was solely on Jesus. And the phrase also means from that point forward, it's a fact. It's done. Uh, it could be translated, your sins have been forgiven because now and forever that man's sins were forgiven because of Christ and because of his faith, focused and persistent trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus forgives your sins. Now, the other thing about this is every time we see this in the Gospels, we've got to be careful not to gloss over this. Because if we're going to apply this to us, we can't say, oh, that man had sins and needed to be forgiven. I don't have that problem. Yes, you do. And so do I. Every time Jesus says that, every time we see that in the Gospels, every time we see God acknowledging the sins of an individual or of humanity, it's a reminder that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are sinners in need of forgiveness. It's a reminder that only God in Jesus Christ can do that for us. And He responds to our faith in Christ and Christ alone to forgive us of our sins. So Jesus applies God's power. He, he responds to your faith. He forgives your sins. And if you wonder if he will forgive your sins, if you wonder, if you're struggling, you think, maybe I've done too much, I'm too much of a mess. Yeah, he'll forgive your sins if you trust him and ask him to do just that. Then third, here's how Jesus applies the power of God. Jesus changes your life. Jesus changes your life. In this series, we will see this over and over and over again. That is, Jesus doesn't leave people where they are the way they were. 
He changes their lives. He changes the trajectory of their lives, the habits of their lives, the perception of their lives. An encounter of Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ that forgives you of your sins, that changes uh, who you are, moves you forward. And that's how God works. Now, a lot of times when we ask God to change things in our lives, we usually speak of outward expressions. And it's, and it's okay. I mean, God... We ask God to heal us. We ask God to help us with finances. We ask God to help us with relationships. Uh, And God says, bring those things to him in prayer. But this story is an explicit and outright reminder that God chooses the actions he will take and, as far as God's concerned, forgiving your sin always matters more than healing, help with finances, relationships... Forgiveness of your sins matters more. All those things matter. But all those things are tied to this life. Forgiveness of your sins is tied to eternity. And Jesus explicitly states right now, God cares more about forgiving your sins, about your internal condition, your character, your eternal standing with God. God cares more about that. He cares about the other things, but he cares more about that. We're told the the Pharisees get upset. And they start ruminating among themselves. He he claims to forgive sins. That's blasphemy. Who is this man? And then Luke says, as does Mark, knowing their thoughts and their heart, Jesus responds. And he responds with a question. It's a puzzle. Jesus is a logician of of sorts, a logic master. And he says, let me pose a puzzle to you. Which is more difficult? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven. To do something no one can confirm because no one can see it. Even the man can't. Which is more difficult for me to say that or for me to say, you're healed, take up your pallet, go home. Because you can see that. Everybody's a witness to that. And he's setting them up, and everybody knows it, that if I can heal this man and he goes home today, That means that I forgave his sins. That means that I have power to forgive sins. That means that it's not blasphemy for me to say that because that means I am God. And probably with a bit of a smile, Jesus says, pick up your pallet and go home. Your life's been changed. And he just gave that man and the whole crowd and the Pharisees proof positive that the first thing he said that he forgave their sins, was was absolutely accurate. It was absolutely true. It's what God had done. Jesus had forgiven that man's sins, and now he had healed him, and now he could go home and live a different life. Everything had changed in that man's life because that's how Jesus applies the power of God to our lives. But it's his choice to do that. He decides how he's going to do that. For every human being that will ask for forgiveness of sins, put their faith and trust in Him. God, through Jesus Christ, will always forgive you of your sins. But sometimes you ask for help or healing, other changes in your life, and God says, let's work on you from the inside out first and let those things come later. The man took up his mat, he took up and he walked out of there. Can't you hear the celebration? Luke records it. People clapping, people applauding, the the gasps turn to joy. 
turns to praise, turns to glorifying God, people spilling out in the streets, praising God. Did you see that? Did you see what just happened? And imagine how that man felt from that day forward as Jesus had just changed his life, forgiven him and healed him. Every time God forgives us of our sins, every time a person trusts Christ as their Savior, there should be change in our lives. Maybe it's not a dramatic healing. The Bible teaches what's more consistent is that your character, your heart, your mind change from the inside out. And that's the evidence that God is at work in your life. That's the evidence of what God is doing in your life. Sometimes it is dramatic healing. Sometimes it's set free from addiction. Sometimes it's God doing other works in your life. But always, always, one consistent thing is when God forgives through Christ, a person's life starts to change from the inside out. And that raises a question, doesn't it? What changes are happening in your life, believer? You claim to be born again in Christ. What's changing in your life? What changes have you seen in your life? What difference does it make? Uh, this June, my wife and I will celebrate 37 years of marriage. For 37 years, I've worn this wedding band. Uh, and everybody knows, you know, we talk about it at weddings, that when you put that wedding ring on, it's an outward expression of an inward commitment, uh, or sometimes we say an inward grace. So I want you to imagine for a moment that I'm not wearing my wedding band, which feels pretty weird, by the way. Uh, imagine that I'm not wearing it, and I'm going through my day, and I go to Walmart, and I start talking to a cashier, just strike him up in conversation. How you doing? You know, get to know him a little bit, and all of that. And in the course of it, because we're, we have a little time to talk, it's Walmart after all, he says, are you married? And I said, yes, yes, I am. This June, I'll be married 37 years. He looks at my hand and says, you're not wearing a wedding band. I said, yeah, yeah, but I've been married 37 years. And he says, but you're not wearing a wedding band. Because everybody knows if there's been an inward commitment, there will be an outward sign of it. It's basic. It's fundamental to who we are. And the Bible teaches the same, way, same thing about our salvation in Christ. If there has been an inward change, there will be an outward verification, confirmation. Your life will change. Your attitudes, your language, your decision-making, your values will change. They will become more and more and more like Christ. Can't you imagine, for years to come, every time that man walked down the street, people would say, there he is. There he is. I was there that day. I was there that day. I was sitting in the house. I couldn't get in, but, but I was there too, and I was standing outside. Did you see those people take him up there? They broke right through the roof. And I was there that day when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and then to confirm it, he had him get up, and he walked right out of there. I was there that day. That's him. That's him. I know him. I know him. Nobody ever forgot that. And every time he walked by, every time he showed up to a dinner, every time he walked down that street, came to the market, showed up for work, from that point forward, he was that guy. He was that guy. Jesus changed his life. And everybody knew it. Because everybody saw it. Who knew him? It should be that way for us.
You say you're born again in Christ? You say you know Jesus as your Savior? What difference does it make? And when people see you go by, the people that have known you a long time or the people that first met, just met you, but do they know you and they say, yeah, I know him, I know her. God's really changed his life. God's really changed her life. Oh, he's not perfect, she's not perfect. But from the inside out, change is being made and God's doing a great work in their life. I know them and I see it and I watch it. The sad truth is, more often than that, is this. Oh, you say you go to church. You say you're a Christian. What difference does it make? You live the same way I do. You cheat on your taxes just like I do. You use the same language I do. You got the same priorities I do six days a week, but on Sunday you go to church. What difference does it make? You say you're born again. You say you're a Christian. Why should I care? It makes no difference in your life. Christians, listen, let God show it to you now if he's speaking to your heart. You and I should be changing and growing from the inside out to be more like Jesus Christ. And if you know he's speaking to you right now, you know that's not hadn't been happening. Not much change there. You need to get with God this morning. I'm going to pray with you in just a minute. But I want to encourage you, even urge you to get with God this week and say, God, forgive me. Start changing me from the inside out. It could be you just think you're a Christian and you need to nail that down. I'm going to pray with you in just a minute and I'm going to pray with those of you here and at home that have never trusted Christ as your Savior because this is the day that you say, I want to put focused, persistent faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to bring the power of God into my life to forgive me of my sins because no one else can do that. You've been looking for that. You've been searching for purpose. You've been trying to find God. He's right here in the room in Jesus Christ and you can trust him put all your faith in him he'll forgive you of your sins and start changing you from the inside out bow your heads with me just bow your heads and close your eyes nobody looking around bow your heads close your eyes here and at home no one looking around so those of us that call ourselves Christians I'm going to ask you first right now if you would say be honest with God and say right now God I know that I'm born again in Christ I'm I believe that I am. I I believe that I'm a Christian. I walk with Christ, but it hasn't changed me much. And God, I ask your forgiveness for that. If if that's you, I want to pray for you. Just lift your hand up where you are. And be honest, just lift your hand up where you are. God knows who you are. Good. Thank you. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds, God. You even know those of us who hesitate to, to hold our hands up. But God, you know us. And Father, my prayer for all of us who say we follow Christ is that the difference would show in our lives. From the inside out, God, you would be changing us, working in our lives, bringing the power of God into our lives. Father, we praise you and thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. But Father, I pray that we would, now more than ever, when we leave this place today, God, we would have a fresh commitment to following Christ and you changing us who we are, our character our priorities, our language, our thoughts, our values, all these things, God, that demonstrate who we are in Christ. May the people we know best see that difference in us every day. And now, Father, for those in this room and at home 
that you're showing us, God, we, we claim to be Christians, but the truth is we're, we're really just religious. And the reason there's been no real change is that we haven't put our faith and trust in Jesus fully and totally. We want to nail that down today. And maybe it's a first-time commitment to Christ. Maybe there's someone here or at home that today would be the day they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins. For the first time, focused, persistent faith. Say, Jesus, I trust you and you alone. God, I pray this prayer with them and I pray in faith we would put our faith in Christ. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I can't save myself. I can't change myself from the inside out. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me and that you're alive today. So Jesus, this is my prayer of faith. I ask you to come into my heart, into my life. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to give me a home in heaven, to make me more like you day by day. And from this day forward, I'll follow Christ. Heavenly Father, for those who prayed this prayer or a prayer of fresh commitment, God, whatever it is, I pray, God, you be with us in those commitments. You be with us, Father, as our lives show the changes of God in Jesus Christ. I pray people would know that we know you. And God, forgive us when it hasn't been. And God, I know we have problems in our lives. We have struggles. We have heartaches. I lift all that up to you as well, God. I pray you do a great work in the lives of everyone here and at home today, Father. Healing, guiding, helping day by day. But God, more than anything else, Father, change us from the inside out. God, I pray you bless and be with us in these commitments that we make. And may all that we do honor Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray.